Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and this is Exponential Wisdom. We're coast to coast today from Toronto to L.A., and the L.A. side is Peter Diamandis. And Peter, so many interesting breakthroughs in so many different areas. I don't know how you sleep at night. Peter, do you sleep at night? (laughs) (laughs) I force myself to, you know, until our brains are able to evolve to take back a third of our life that we give away, I tell you. But it's really hard. One of the things that we're going to talk about today is one of the oldest industries on the planet. And the largest industry, a $2 trillion endeavor, making us our dinner and our lunch food, agriculture. Agriculture, yes. I grew up on a farm, so this is very close at heart, but there's some just enormous abilities now to make predictions about agriculture Peter, you've been out making the rounds over the last quarter. What are you seeing now in the ability for farmers, every farmer really, but everybody related to the agricultural industry, to start getting much, much better understanding of what crop yields are going to be, which lands are going to produce good crops, which lands aren't going to produce good crops? Can you talk a little bit about this? Because this is fascinating. Yeah, uh, happy to. And let me just give a, uh, a little advanced spoiler. We're also on this Exponential Wisdom podcast. In addition to agriculture, I think, Dan, we've agreed we're going to talk about the revolution in transportation. And there's a link between the two. But if your thing isn't agriculture, if you like don't like food, well, then hang out because I know you'd get transportation. So one of the big notions is if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And we're heading from a planet today of 7 billion, I think we'll probably peak at 9 to 10 billion people on the planet, and we need to be able to feed those two extra billion individuals. Agriculture is the way we're going to do it. And one of the revolutions coming on right now, very strong, is sensor technology. My friends at Cisco talk about the notion that we're living today in the 2015 timeframe with a world of about 15 to 20 billion connected devices, and we'll be by 2020 at about 100 billion connected devices. And each of those connected devices have a dozen sensors. Your cell phone has like a dozen key sensors in it, and it's going to head towards a trillion sensor economy. Mm. It used to be that farming, and you know the numbers, I think farming represented something like 80% of the human endeavor in the early 1800s. Today, it's under 2%. But in the old days, you'd like sow your seeds, and you'd walk out into your farm and sort of see how they're doing by looking at a few plants. And if you had hundreds of acres, which was huge, that's hard to cover. But now they're companies with millions of acres. And we're developing technologies, remote technologies, in the terms of drones and spacecraft that, you know, the best way to describe it is that we're going to be given a godlike knowledge of what's growing on every acre of cropland on the planet. So you want to know what's going on you can know. You can know the green-up rate, the nutrients in the soil, the moisture in the soil, the production rate of your farms. It's going to be extraordinary. And this is happening right now. There are lots of drone companies in the ag tech business. And there's at least three and probably as many as five to ten orbital constellations that are going to be launched over the next few years looking at this arena. Yeah, I got probably an inside view of what you're talking about, Peter, because one of our longtime strategic coach entrepreneurs, Rob Sake, who comes from Alberta in Canada, the farms in that part of the world are really, really big ones. I mean, I have 
farmers. I mean, that's a loose definition because these are agricultural companies have 20, 30,000 acres, and these are family-run, but they have dozens of team members, and they're very up-to-date with technology. And one of the big things, and this is using the existing technology that's been around for a number of years from the satellites that were up there, but Rob, as early as I would say 1995, was able to sit down with a farmer and take him over a complete satellite photo that was color sensitive. So they could make color distinctions between really fertile soil that was going to be high crop yield and then less so. And they said, well, don't plant here because it's not worth your while to plant. And so farmers right off the bat started cutting their labor by 15%. They started cutting their costs because they didn't use seed and they didn't use fertilizer in certain areas. But I think probably since 1995, I mean, we're 20 years further ahead, the whole technology of sensing almost like the square inch is now being available and not just for certain parts of the world, it's now for the whole world. You're right. And the cost is plummeting because it used to be only done by costly airplanes. Now drones and satellites give you tenfold or hundredfold cost. So that's one big, you know, sensor and getting the data to be able to measure. And we talk about that we're living in a world where if you're not data-driven, you're ahead of business. So that's for sure. Everybody knows that you do a lot of things, but one of your original and outstanding successful endeavors was Singularity University. And I suspect over the next 10 or 15 years among your people from coming around the world, you're going to see more and more people coming from the agricultural sector. It is. I'm off to Dubai and Abu Dhabi shortly and meeting with numerous executives. And part of that's in the ag business because they need food and they're investing in agriculture around the world. They want to know what's going on. So sensors and imaging technology is one area that's going to disrupt or change agriculture. Another one is the whole genetics, the whole what we call GMOs, which have gotten Mm -hmm. this negative concept, which Mm -hmm. I really want to set the record straight. And our friend Rob Sake is funding a documentary on this because it's crazy. I can point at millions of lives that genetically modified foods have enabled. Mm -hmm. I can't point at any lives that have been lost Mm -hmm. to GMOs. I just finished a very major and interesting article on the whole concept of gene transfer because there's sort of this pristine notion of human beings. First of all, human beings are genetically modified. As a matter of fact, anything that's living on the planet is genetically modified. Nature and then the whole notion of breeding. I mean, this has been going on forever. There's none of us that are pure. But the whole notion that there's a constant movement of transfers from one genetic area of species, could be plant life, could be animal life, and that that's intermixing with human beings. That is exactly right. The thing that you said, Peter, they don't have one documented case, despite all the scare that has been going on, it's been going on for a long time, that there isn't one document case of someone dying from genetically modified food. But on the other hand, there's been tens of millions of people saved who otherwise would not have had food and wouldn't have food available, wouldn't have food cheaply unless it was coming from the latest scientific research about really good, nutritious food. Yeah, it's strange because the food chain, if you stop, you think about it, what's really going on? The sunlight 
which is the ultimate energy source for our, our universe, or at least our solar system, mm -hmm. so to speak, is coming down. It's being captured by photosynthetic plants. It's being converted to high energy bonds that we eat directly in the plant, or it's eaten by a cow, and then we eat the cow, whatever your tastes are. But it's a mechanism for converting sunlight into energy in your body. That's mm -hmm. what food is. And we've benefited from hundreds of millions of years of evolution. But evolution has got a different mission in mind. It's not feeding 9 billion people. It's just creating a balance, and that's important. But I believe we're going from evolution by natural selection, which is Darwinism, to evolution by intelligent direction, where we can, in fact, produce the foods that have the perfect proteins, have the perfect carbohydrates, have the right vitamins in them, and do it safely, obviously, do no harm is number one, but do it in a much more efficient fashion. And I think that's the future that genetic engineering and synthetic biology has ahead of us. And I think this is part of the disruption that will occur. We'll have foods that are drought resistant or foods that platinum rice has vitamin A to help prevent mm -hmm. blindness in different parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, the great Borlands, the scientist Borland in the 1960s, I mean, everybody was predicting that there was going to be mass starvation especially in the Indian subcontinent, because crop yields just weren't up to the population. And he genetically modified rice so that the nutritional output was two to three times greater. It was a much sturdier rice. He also did it with corn. So all those predictions that were made in the 1960s about mass starvation in the 80s and 90s, there's one famous <laughs> one famous professor at Stanford University who's been making outrageous negative predictions for 45 years. It just shows how the world goes. I don't think one of his predictions has ever remotely come true, but one of his was just the food supply. When we were 1 billion people in 1800, pretty good statistics. We know it was about a billion in 1800. I have to tell you, very few people were eating properly, and here we are at 7 billion, and we're eating a lot better. Is there starvation? Yes. Is there malnutrition? Yes. But that's mostly because of bad market controls. That's mostly government-induced. People are starving. It's usually the government that's responsible because <laughs> they're interfering with the distribution. If everybody was allowed to sell all the food to all the people who need it, we wouldn't have any starvation on the planet. A third technology, Dan, that has been and is continued to disrupt and revolutionize agriculture is farm equipment, application of technology, and autonomous farm equipment. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the numbers before. In the early 1800s, farming was the dominant. I think 80% mm -hmm. of uh, Americans were farmers, and now it's under 2%. And what's coming online right now is robotic farm equipment mm -hmm. that can basically plant and till and harvest foods and crops far more efficiently than humans can and do it on a large scale. So we're going to see robots and autonomous vehicles entering our farms more and more. A couple of years ago, Peter, along those lines, I was visiting Yosemite 
National Park, one of the great wonders on the planet. And I ran into this guy who is a John Deere dealer. John Deere is the largest manufacturer of farm equipment on the planet. Of course, the Central Valley of California is one of the greatest growing areas of the world. And he was talking about the tomato crops up near Sacramento. And he said that the pickers that they now have for tomatoes, first of all, they don't bruise the tomatoes, but the sensors, going back to the subject of sensors, the breakthroughs in sensors here, they can actually evaluate the greenness or the redness of a tomato, how ripe it is, how not ripe it is, the size, whether it's a perfect red tomato, because those are the only ones that people really want to buy in supermarkets. So it's color sensitive, it's firmness sensitive, it can tell the size. And I said, a machine like that, if you had regular pickers and you had the machine out there, how many people is it replacing? He said 100. He said that one machine replaces 100 people. Yeah. You know, and everybody says, isn't that awful? But I have to tell you, all those guys picking tomatoes, it's backbreaking work. It's a terrible work. One of the most important things about having really bad jobs is that people don't stay in them too long. They get a chance to go higher and everything like that. But that was just an example, you know, and this is not some of the latest stuff. I was simply talking about technology that's been out there for five or 10 years. The latest stuff is going to be autonomous farming equipment that actually can start at 6 a.m. and end at 6 a.m. It's going 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it is taking care of your farm and maximizing an output. And of course, a lot of this autonomous capability is coming from the transportation business. And mm -hmm. if it's okay with you, maybe a pivot to the disruption and change in transportation. And what I'd like to do is actually read a couple of stats that I think are valuable to frame the conversation about transportation, what's wrong with it, and why autonomous vehicles are so right. So mm -hmm. here are the stats. The first is that we lose 33,000 lives per year in the United States and with millions of injuries, and there's 1.2 million deaths around the world. So a million people around the world, and of course, probably tens or more million. And it's the largest cause of death for children. People don't realize that, but I think below the age of 12, the number one killer is automotive accidents. The next amazing stat is that there's $230 billion of cost due to accidents, $230 billion. I think it's like the number one cost more than most of the other costs of, of driving. And then I love this. In the United States, there's 50 billion hours lost of people's time <laughs> a trillion dollars worth, 8% of the U.S. gross domestic product sitting behind, you know, in the wheel of a car. Oh, my God. And then in the U.S., again, I just got these stats, 50 billion gallons of imported gasoline that account for about 15% of the U.S. CO2 output. Mm -hmm. So amazing weighted costs for driving this iron womb to protect you on the way to work. Yeah, and it was great in its day. This is probably the technological breakthrough of the 20th century was the automobile. But now the next stage can be jumped to. And the next stage is fully autonomous cars. And I love it. I've been spending a lot of time. And if you look at the interesting announcements, this was pioneered by the DARPA Grand Challenge back in mid-2000s. They ran a competition that led to the Stanford team, the Stanley team winning it. 
than Google under really Larry Page's personal passion. He hated the stats that I read to you about cars. And then he and Sergey Brin backed Autonomous Car Project. And now you've got Uber investing very heavily in mm-hmm. autonomous cars, Tesla investing heavily, Apple investing heavily. And if I were in Detroit, I'd be scared out of my mind of having Google and Apple and Uber and Tesla going after my industry because who's going to want to own an old-style car that wastes hours a day and is a death trap? In fact, I think it's going to be illegal to drive a car other than on a test track in the not-too-distant future. Well, certainly in cities. I think the cities are going to be the number one thing. There's just massive slow movement in cities with cars that can go much greater speeds. A lot of the burn-off is just people being parked on the freeway or some side street or anything like that. But Peter, you go and you've been in the cars and everything. What's it feel like when you're in one of these cars? So it's pretty much like being in an elevator. (laughs) You know, and I can imagine the first time that a person walked into an automatic elevator, pushed the button and it went up on its own and like, is it going to stop And then after you've ridden an elevator a few times, you get pretty self-assured that it's going to accelerate and stop at the right time. And the same thing for these cars. It's a little bit strange in the beginning, but after a while, you get used to it. And Google's cars have driven a million and a half miles. They've gone hundreds of thousands of miles without any issue. And the only issues they've had, honestly has been when a human driver has like rear-ended them. (laughs) I mean, that's the only issue. Yeah. There is a separation. I'm really totally conditioned for this because I haven't driven for about 15 years. And I just got a limousine service because, first of all, I'm not a car guy, so I've never been in love with cars. But I just couldn't see the enormous expense to my personal time and convenience and concentration. So I lead a pretty predictable life, and so I can have pickups. It's a lovely experience not to drive, So, I mean, if it's automatic, it doesn't bother to me. I mean, probably it'll talk to me. It'll have a Siri component that I can chat with it on the way. But this is coming because there's incredible, incredible advantages on so many different levels for this breakthrough. You know, it's very, very disruptive. In Michigan, they're creating a town. It's a 20-acre town. And this is the auto industry. So I think the auto industry is not completely reactive with this. And I think that they're probably doing it with some of the high-tech companies. But they're creating a 20-acre artificial town that has every driving situation in it. And that's one thing, and then there will be another, and then there will be another. But the big thing where this already exists is, first of all, the mining industry. A lot of the big earth movers in the mining industry are autonomous. I think you'll see FedEx. I think you'll see UPS go with the automatic trucks, the farming industry. So... There's going to be a lot of movement where you can get instant movement with these. I think oftentimes industry happens before the consumer markets actually happen. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and there are, in the mining industry, a lot of progress. But every major car company has announced plans for either partial autonomy or full autonomy. And let me just take a second and rattle off, once we get to a world in which autonomous cars are the norm, Just to take a second at what the benefits are. So first of all, save lives. Clearly, we're going to be saving in the United States those 33,000 lives and a million plus around the world for a lot of the children. 
The second is you don't need automotive insurance anymore because cars don't crash. The third is an interesting one that people don't think about. In the U.S., we devote 10% of the urban land to parking spaces. In L.A., it's like almost 50% are roads, parking lots, parking spaces, garages, and so forth. There's going to be a massive land dividend Mm-hmm. when you don't need that land. Turn it into parks, right? And it turns out that autonomous cars, you can put eight times as many autonomous cars on the road as normal cars because the spacing distance is shorter. And so there's much more efficient packing. Mm-hmm. Energy savings, my wife has a five, 6,000 pound Range Rover. And when the guy was selling it, he goes, this is the heaviest car out there and it will protect you in any accidents. You know, And I was like, dude, that is not something I want to hear. I want to hear about the protection, but telling me it's the heaviest car out there is, just goes against the grain of my energy efficiency. I've got a Tesla, she's got a Range Rover. But you won't need a 5,000 pound metal womb to protect you anymore mm-hmm. driving a 100 pound person so that less than 2% of the energy goes towards driving the person. Yeah. So you can make cars much lighter. So that's going to be huge. I always feel that when things are kind of coming to the end of their <laughs> time on earth, things really get absurd. You know, the 6,000 pound car, the reason why you would want that is so in a killing accident, the other guy is killed. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Remember the H1 and the H2? Yes, I know. No, I mean, that's the logic. I mean, it's like I saw these pictures of New York City, you know, when they had the aerial wires, telephone wires, electrical wires, and it almost blacked out the street. They had a roof of wires, and people said, this is absurd. How are we going to do this? You know, well, guess what? Within a period of about 10 years, they were all gone. They went underground. Same thing with manure. New York, I was... <laughs> watching a documentary on New York, probably 1905. It was a million and a half pounds of manure was on the streets, dropped freshly every day. And people said, this is absurd. What are we going to do, you know? And within 20 years, no more horses, except in Central Park and (laughs) ornamental and recreation horses. So things can get really, really absurd. You know, the traffic jams, the accidents, the very, very unproductive use of land it seems absurd, and people start doing these straight-line projections out. There's going to be one more car that comes into Los Angeles, and everything is going to be frozen for five hours. <laughs> but once you introduce a solution, all that stuff can disappear quite quickly. So I'm excited for autonomous cars. Yeah, My two four-year-olds are probably not going to drive. They're going to hop in the car when they're 12 and mm-hmm. say, take me to Billy's house, and off it will go safely. Yeah. So... My feeling, though, at the end of the road, there's just autonomous cars and Ford 150s. <laughs> With a gun rack in the you back. Know, I'm sorry, you will not crack that niche. That's the one you're not going to crack. Oh, goodness. Well, Dan, yeah. always fun. I enjoy talking about the disruption in agriculture and transportation. What do you think for our next session, we pick a couple more industries and dive in? That'd be great. There's so many, but there's a couple where it's going to be one of the biggest savings for tax money for people around the earth, because these are the two industries that are eating up so much tax money. Yeah, let's do those. Healthcare and education. So if you happen to be educated or have kids educate or you care about your health, let's take a glimpse next time into how those industries are going to change this next decade. Dan, always a pleasure. Peter, likewise.